Disrupting Japan, Episode 70. Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from the CEOs breaking into Japan. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening. Today we're going to talk about content delivery networks, or CDNs, those services that cache your website locally around the world so that users can access it extremely quickly. Or more accurately, We're going to talk about how Fastly has managed to sell them in Japan. We sit down today with Doug Chukro, the Japan head of Fastly, to talk not so much about the company, but how you sell innovative technology to large Japanese enterprises. We'll explore why partners are all but essential in entering the Japanese market, but how those relationships can be very much a two edged sword. You need to know what to expect going in. And to try to manage the expectations of everyone involved when you're trying to convert a proven bottom up technical sales process into one that is Japanese style, top down, and governed by long term relationships and unseen alliances. Even when done perfectly, your Japanese partner won't always do what you want, but sometimes they'll do what you need. But you know, Doug tells this story much better than I can. So let's hear from our sponsors and get right to the interview. Kotowork is doing something pretty cool. It's a community of Japanese language students who want to work at Japanese companies with global ambitions. Kotowork also trains them in business culture, Japanese hospitality, and a bit of global marketing. And since it's a real community, Kotowork is always there for both candidates and companies to solve cultural misunderstandings and the hundreds of other little problems that can come up when foreigners work for a Japanese company. Kotowork has a wonderful, long term, community based approach to making sure everything runs smoothly, and you should really check them out at Kotowork with a C dot JP or come to their launch party on January 21st. You can find the details at the site. If you're a startup thinking about Japan, you'll never really understand the opportunities here until you start to take a serious look at what's happening outside of Tokyo. Osaka, in particular, deserves your attention. And this is especially true if you and your team are involved in smart cities technologies. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 project is Osaka's startup central, and it's a great place for you to get started. They offer co working space, bilingual business support, venture investment, and they're at the center of a great international startup and mentor community. Now, Hankyu's GVH5 in Osaka really deserves your attention. So pay them a visit at www.gvh-5.comslash en. You'll be glad you did. I'm sitting here with Doug Chukro, the representative director of Fastly KK, and Thanks for sitting down with me. It's my pleasure. Now, before we get into all the details of how you brought the, the company into Japan and how you grew it here, I want to take a step back and can you explain what Fastly does? Sure. We are a content delivery network, and it's a, there are a number of content delivery networks out there. Many have been around for years and years. In fact, the space is close to two decades old. We are、um, essentially a content delivery network brings content closer to end users and increases the performance for those end users and decreases the amount of workload that the customer's origin has to do. So it essentially is a caching, global caching network that, you know, the, the two major benefits are increasing the end user performance 
and decreasing the origin offload. So just every individual around the world would, instead of accessing the original source homepage, they'd be accessing the cache that is closest to them and having the fastest experience possible. Exactly. So for example, for a, a news media site, let's, I go to the New York Times webpage every morning to see what's, what's going on. And rather than connecting to the New York Times origin infrastructure on the east coast of the United States, which would be a terrible experience for me here in Tokyo, I actually connect with the local POP server of Fastly here in Shinagawa, where most of that content is cached. I get a very quick response that page loads almost instantly. And likewise, the uh, operations team for New York Times in New York, they don't even see a hit against their infrastructure, right? It essentially offloads that. It lets the customers scale out much, much faster and much further as well. Exactly, yes. Okay, so this sounds almost by nature like a global business. It is. In fact, before we came to Japan, before we started our business in Japan, we had one POP operating in Tokyo and several others in Asia. So and, and a POP is a, a, a cash... Point, of, point of presence. Point yeah. of presence. What was headquarters' main motivation of setting up in Japan? Yeah, so there were a number of factors. You know, Fastly was growing quickly in North America. Our headquarters is in San Francisco. We had started an office in London, so we were beginning that process of growth in Europe. And like you mentioned, we had to build a global network to serve all of our audience, right? Uh, global expansion from a infrastructure point of view is pretty easy because we've already built out quite a bit of our infrastructure globally just to serve our North American customers well. Right. So going into a new market is a matter of just hiring the salespeople and standing up the business. It's not a trivial thing at all. I was going to say, it's, it's easy to say that. <laughs> yeah, it's not a trivial matter at all, but the infrastructure was largely there. Was there a particular trigger event? Were, were you getting either demand from your U.S. customers to have more, uh, more pops in Japan, or were you having Japanese customers who wanted to use your network globally that kind of pulled you into Japan, or was this just a natural progression. So it was a number of different things. We were interested in, in international expansion. We were pushing into Europe. We were looking at places in Asia to expand and looked at Japan. In fact, one of our customers in the United States is a subsidiary of a large retailer here in Japan. And so they made a connection for us and started that, those conversations for us. Got some executives to come over here and talk to some people and kind of feel it out. That coupled with a, a healthy fascination by our CEO of Japanese culture. This happens a lot, actually. Yeah. It's, uh, I'm not sure why exactly, but there are so many, particularly from San Francisco, in the startup community are fascinated with Japan in general. Yeah, and it's interesting. You come over here, it's the third largest economy. We looked at the CDN market space here, and it's fairly mature and continues to grow. So unlike setting up in either Singapore or Hong Kong, you know, are global hubs, but their domestic markets are relatively small. Uh, the other one is China. China is massive, but it is a completely different ball of wax, one which we are, we are still you know, uh, very cautious about. So Japan really made sense for us. So Fastly and the CDN market in general is a very, it's a niche market. So was there a perception of the Fastly brand in the Japanese market? 
before you came in? What was the competitive landscape like? Were there strong competitors in the market? Yes, there are very strong competitors in the market. And to answer your first question, the Fastly brand, we realized that it was next to unknown. There were pockets of knowledge about Fastly, but we hadn't done anything to promote our, our brand here. And so we knew that that was going to be one of our major challenges. Uh, the dominant m player in, in CDN globally and in Japan specifically is Akamai. They're the 800-pound gorilla. Uh, and they've kind of defined the space over the last two decades. We knew that we didn't have much of a brand. And we had to spend a lot of effort and still need to spend a lot of effort to build our brand here. And that's a multi-pronged effort. One of the things that we thought would be really good for us is to get somebody to vouch for us. Because... Sure. Having a local partner to vouch for you means quite a bit. Early on, our executive team made some connections with SoftBank. They have been and continue to be very generous with their time and their energy in promoting uh, Fastly. So they are a reseller of Fastly today and have been for 18 months. And I would venture to say that if it weren't for their generosity and their willingness to partner with a relatively unknown unknown in Japan company, that we may not even have opened the office here. I want to talk about that relationship. Yeah. But before we do that, your significant competition was foreign companies? Were there, were there, are there domestic companies in this space as well? There are very few domestic CDNs. So the big ones that we run into, as I said, is our Akamai. The other one is AWS has their own CDN okay. offering. Um, and AWS, I think, is remarkable of, of the work that they've done here in Japan, a foreign company coming into Japan and establishing themselves the way that they have, I think, is quite commendable. They've been a steamroller in this market. Yeah, and something that I aspire to, to be honest with you. I'm, those are our two major competitors. There are other competitors, but none of them really domestic. That's a very interesting situation to be in. It is. But if we go back to the notion of a content delivery network really has to be a global network to be an effective thing. There really hasn't been a Japanese domestic CDN that has been able to kind of build out. It's very interesting in a go-to-market perspective yep. in that you are free to make partnerships and you're not fighting against entrenched decades-old alliances in the market. Very much so, so yeah. Well, let's talk about the, the partnerships you did make. You worked very closely with SoftBank. Yep. This wasn't a joint venture. They were just a... It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, that was discussed a little bit, but our executive team felt very strongly that we needed to maintain a certain amount of independence. And so that was pretty clear that that, that was going to be our path. RKK is a wholly owned subsidiary of the parent company. Originally, was SoftBank uh, an exclusive reseller? Were they just a preferred partner? What was the structure you set up? So they are our strategic reselling partner. It is not an exclusive relationship. And in fact, our first few deals here in Japan were direct deals. Very small customers that luckily we still have today that we just needed to get on the map. Relationships that I had made socially or just randomly, they got to be our first customers. And they were, in fact, direct customers, not through our partners. Let's dig into that right now. This is something I definitely wanted to talk about. Partnerships are a great way to both enter the Japanese market and to grow the company once you're here. They're a real force multiplier. Absolutely. So when you were first coming into the market and you had a SoftBank partnership, and SoftBank is hugely influential in this market, 
How much did you think you would be able to sell directly through SoftBank, and how much did you expect that you would have to be doing on your own? How much of the heavy lifting did right. you think the partners would be doing? I think the initial notion was that we could just set up a business here to be installed exclusively through SoftBank, even though the contract wasn't exclusive, that we, there was enough business there to just sell through that channel and everyone would be very happy with our, with our progress. So, so they'd that, just be bringing you the customers they and you'd be, be yeah, and doing your thing. would be ser- serving them and that, that would be a, a, enough. The thing is, what we've come to learn and come to appreciate, SoftBank is very much a relationship company. They have amazing relationships with enterprise customers. They are not as deeply in tune with more of the DevOps community. And that is really kind of Fastly's origin culture is that we kind of grew up serving the DevOps community, more faster, more agile, selling our technology and selling it by its benefits itself and not really focusing on a true enterprise sale, but somebody who really can get their hands on it, can start to use it. Your sales cycle is is very much bottom up. You sell, you convince the engineers who then convince their bosses and you get the company and, on And in a site. lot of customers, the line between engineer and boss and CTO is pretty, pretty thin, right? It's, there's not a lot of layers there for a lot of our customers. Especially and, when you're, you're servicing startups yeah. and have a very flat, flat hierarchy. Yeah. One of our biggest customers that we have is Twitter. And the CTO of Twitter probably knows as much about Fastly as, he, as you know, a lot of people who work for, <laughs> for Fastly. So these companies that we have traditionally built our business with back in the States, they understand our technology from top to bottom. They understand why we're better and, and you know, why we're good for them. When we look at potential enterprise customers here in Japan, uh, a lot of those, you, once you get past the engineer level, Those conversations have to quickly change into less technical, more business-focused. It's much different, and there's a lot of relationship. Right, that's the word that we keep coming back to here, relationships. So when when you were saying SoftBank was doing relationship sales, and they have these strong relationships, they were approaching uh, CIOs, CTOs at large corporations. And was the problem that these... These people didn't understand the technology. It was, it was too new. It was too different. What, what was happening? Well, I think the problem, and it's not necessarily a problem. It's just different. It's a situation where SoftBank has these big accounts with these big enterprises, and they sell a portfolio of different products to these customers. And the SoftBank sales rep can't know everything about every product and be able to differentiate and articulate why your product specifically is better for their customer. Oh, I see. So you're used to doing highly technical sales. And in Japan, you had a partner that just realistically could not do that level of technical selling for you. No, and it, it would be, yeah, it's, in, it's not realistic, as you say, not realistic to expect them to do that, right? So it, we have to go through a number of steps just to get to speak to the right person at the end customer really gets it. So just finding that right person and convincing the partner rep to kind of let the guard down, open up the doors, um, because they're very protective of their relationships, as they should be, right? They've nurtured these relationships over time, and they don't want you coming in and upsetting their apple cart. And one product coming or going doesn't mean a lot to them. It's the relationship that matters. Okay. So the initial plan 
was having SoftBank do the heavy lifting mm-hmm. for sales and, and a lot of the marketing. Yeah. And you would do the fulfillment. You would support the customers. So the initial team was, I imagine, heavily support and engineering based. Yeah. In fact, my first hire was a sales engineer, not really a salesperson, because I needed somebody who could speak in Japanese to a counterpart at the end customer to talk, about our, 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 to talk about our technology and have our partner talk about the business benefits, right? The other thing we, as we were building the team, we recognize is, A, we need Japanese faces. So I, I'm the expat here, and that's really all we need is, is one expat. We need Japanese people to put in front of Japanese customers to convince them that we are committed and dedicated to, to yep. Japan. Were your Japanese staff uh, going on sales calls with SoftBank, or was it strictly kind of back-end and after-sales support? They were going on sales calls and continue to go on sales calls with, with okay. SoftBank and with our other partners. So we hired two sales engineers. Ultimately, we hired a, a account exec, two customer support engineers, both Japanese-speaking. So everybody is Japanese-speaking, the nice. major exception of me. <laughs> um, just by luck, by happy luck, we happened to come across a couple of engineers here in, in Japan who are really good. One of them has since transferred to the San Francisco office, but we've got another one uh, starting in the beginning of January. We've got another one down in um, Kyoto area. That's great when you've got the team that is integrated globally, and it prevents Japan from kind of becoming this black box. And I, I want to talk about that later, yeah. for sure. But Let's get back to kind of the, the situation you were in with, with the sales strategy. Sure. You realized that selling through the partner, the enterprise sales approach, wasn't working as you'd hoped. Uh, how did you adapt? You mentioned you, you had to make a, f- a few sales on your own directly. It wasn't that it wasn't working. It's that I knew that we needed to have a few quick wins. We needed to have a few Japanese logos on our board to get the attention of SoftBank reps. Right, to say, oh, this can be done, and I can do it. And so that was really the first time we did some direct sales, and they were relatively small deals. In kind of our um, you know, coming out party with SoftBank, we wanted to show the people at SoftBank that you know, we are a viable product here in Japan. People can and will buy us. And were your initial Japanese deals the, similar to the deals you're doing in the States, uh, startup companies, Very much things so. like that? Very much so, where the sales cycle is pretty quick, where the buyers are quite technical. Yeah, that, that we're quick to move, I'd, I'd say, and okay. not really enterprise customers. All right. So how have you squared this circle now? Has SoftBank and other partners you, you may have, have they... Have they been able to step up and do the more technical selling, or have you taken a greater role of and done more direct selling? A little bit of both. So they have. Uh, we've worked a lot with our partners to help educating educate the sales team, but we still need to go on sales calls with these partners, and I don't envision that changing for some time. And that's fine. And if we treat them as really good lead generation for us, that's fantastic. They can get and have gotten us into enterprises and even some government customers that we have now that we would have never gotten had we been here for a decade, right? Uh, But at the same time, we continue to move forward with our direct sales, those quicker moving, more agile companies that are based in Rapungi and Shibuya. And so we've made some progress there too. 
That makes sense. So you have the the partners handling a lot of the top down large enterprise sales, and yep. you're you're doing the same type of bottom up sales within the startup community in Japan that you are in the U.S. and globally. That's right. And and the other thing that I that I should mention is that when we came into Japan, we had already established a technology partner with Google, Google Cloud Platform. So when we came into Japan, they were still pretty small here in Japan and are still kind of trying to play catch up to a certain extent. But they were very generous with making connections to not only some of their end customers, but also to some of the smaller kind of systems integrators that specialize in integrating Google Cloud Platform products. It's quite interesting. The attitude in the United States towards partnerships is highly cynical. But it seems Japan, it's almost essential that you do partner up with someone. Um, yeah. in, in general, the I subsidiaries agree. here, a much larger percentage of the total revenues come through partners than is the case globally. Yes, and I, I kind of feel like we needed partnerships at multiple levels. So we needed our big brother, SoftBank, to kind of carry us into some of these customers and, and vouch for us to a certain extent. Not only sell for us, but vouch for us, which is, I think is very important because we had no reputation here. We had no brand here. And we needed to show our commitment to Japan at a number of different levels. One of them being, hey, if SoftBank vouches for you, that's pretty good. There's something there. Yeah, there's, there's something there. And at the same time, our, our relationship with GCP and also the kind of the GCP ecosystem with some of the partners, the smaller systems integrators that they've introduced us to, gets us in at a different level. It gets us in at the guys who are actually turning the screws, right? You know, I, I've found that both from my own companies and the companies I brought into Japan, a lot of partners, the first couple of sales you do have to go out and make yourself and sometimes even bring the sale to the partner and then let them execute on it and kind of prime the pump, if you will. Absolutely. In fact, we have done exactly that with, <laughs> a, with a, a, at least one of our customers. So, yeah, you have to kind of show them that this will work and this is you know, beneficial for everybody. It's good for your customer. It's good for you. Changing gears for a minute, um, Fastly is a, it's a highly technical product. I think the value proposition would be almost identical around the world. But Japanese customers are notoriously demanding. Were there any changes you had to make in the product or the, the positioning of the product to suit the Japanese market? Yeah, and not so much the product, but as you say, the positioning of the product. When you talked about, when I talked about a, a CDN, what a CDN is, we increase the end user performance and we reduce the origin offload. That is the kind of the core tenant of what a CDN is. The thing about it, Japan is you have a very dense population that's, I'd say, very well connected, right? Ah. So if you have a data center here in Japan uh, or here in Tokyo, your performance all over Japan is pretty darn good. So if you're going to sell on performance alone, you're going to have a hard time doing it. Right. People just don't see the need for it. Right. However, if you are you know, the BBC and you've got readers all over the globe, you are going to have a much better appreciation for the performance benefit that the CDN offers you. So we had to tailor our message to back away from the performance benefit aspect of it Focus on not only the origin offload perspective, but also talk about things like security and reliability. 
right. because those are valued aspects that, thing, that, that a Japanese company looks at. They look at security. They're very security conscious, very risk conscious. Much more so than in the United States. I think, I think to a large extent, yeah. They, they really uh, focus on risk assessment and mitigation. So we, what we've done is try to position ourselves as a kind of a risk mitigator. Okay. We are a shock absorber. For example, if you get attacked by a DDoS event, we will absorb that shock and protect your business. We offer things at the edge that help filter traffic so it never really get those, those bad guys can never really get to your origin. We act as a shock absorber. So if you have a massive marketing event that draws a, a great deal of users to your website, your website will, it will be up, continue to stay up during the, the, those flash events. That notion of reliability and security, along with origin offload, resonate very well here. I can imagine. No, it's always fascinating how a slight change in positioning with exactly the same core product can have such, an, such a different effect in different markets. Yeah, that's it's absolutely true. Are the majority of your customers in Japan trying to reach a global audience? Or are they, are they mostly reaching a domestic audience, but they're very concerned with the security aspects and the reliability aspects? A fair number of our customers have domestic traffic only. Interesting. There are Japanese websites written in Japanese. I mean, it's the third largest economy in the world. So there is a big market for, I mean, if we talk about e-commerce alone, there is a massive market here. Oh, the volumes these sites are doing is it, tremendous. It's unbelievable. It really is. It, for, the, yeah, for, for the size of the population and, and how condensed the population is, it's really amazing how much kind of traffic that they generate. But to the other, to the other point, there, there are a number of customers that we do have who are distributing their content globally, specifically in the gaming space. There, the, the performance aspect of comes into play a little bit more but they're looking for something that is reliable and efficient. You mentioned that some of your U.S. customers know as much about your technology as some of your employees do. Yeah. In fact, some of our best employees actually came from our customers. <laughs> really? Much to the chagrin of, of, uh, of some of those customers. But no. Coming into Japan, I'm assuming this wasn't the case. Did you find you had to do a lot more uh, customer education in Japan than you did in the U.S.? Interestingly, there are a fair number of Japanese kind of the, the DevOps uh, community here is very adamant about trying new technologies. They don't care where it's from, if it's new and if it's interesting and if it's compelling, they will cross that language barrier to, to learn about it. So there is a small but influential group of people here who follow us. Okay. and have helped kind of evangelize at a very, you know, guerrilla level. Oh, that's great. So you had a lot of engineering thought leaders talking about you and advocating you from the beginning. Yeah, and I have to credit some of the engineers, the Japanese engineers that we hired are some of those leaders, in fact. Oh, excellent. So they wrote blogs about us even before they started working for us. They, they wrote blogs about us and, and kind of promoted us at a very kind of grassroots level. But there are still a number of situations where we have to go into either a partner or their customer and really kind of educate them from what is the CDN? How does the internet really work? Okay. Right? And kind of you know, uh, educate them 
everyone always says that the sales cycles take longer in Japan, which is true, but it, it sounds like in your case it would take longer than usual because of the education component as well. Yeah, and that's something that we were anticipating. We kind of knew in,、uh, from day one that the sales cycle would take longer, and it, take, it just takes time. It takes time for everyone to kind of digest, and especially when we haven't. Maybe done the best job of making all of our documentation available in Japanese. For a technology company, that's a huge investment. It's a massive investment to, to translate all your documentation Japanese, and then to put in systems and processes in place to keep that documentation up to date as that documentation evolves with、right. your product, right? But. Not having that documentation in Japanese, whether it's marketing documentation, product descriptions, data sheets, even the product itself is not in Japanese, which I don't see as a big problem. But some of the supporting documentation, it, it's helpful to have in, in Japanese. It's interesting. A lot of our, our end users are themselves engineers, so not having the product itself is probably the lowest on the priority list of of. of This this is very interesting. Let's talk a bit about localization.、Mm-hmm. So the product itself is not in Japanese.、Mm-hmm. Um, do you have plans of localizing it in the the near future, or are you happy、uh, with the way things are? I'm happy because、uh, I'm not a Japanese engineer. Well, I mean, a better question: Are your customers happy with the way things are? I think are? they are. They are accepting of, of the way it is. What they want to see is a supporting documentation that. Is in Japanese that will guide them through the product that's in English. So engineers are used to working with English language、They、interfaces. Are, yeah, they're used to reading the latest release information in English because that's the way it always comes out. Sure. But for a company like Fastly that's coming into Japan, how do you prioritize? There's no way you can possibly localize everything.、Right. Some of the new documentation—it's moving so fast and being updated continuously. It's, as you mentioned, it's very hard to put in process to keep that up to date. So, what did you find were the most essential things you had to localize, both to make the sale and to support the customers and get them using Fastly effectively? I think we kind of followed the. Sales cycle from beginning to end, and looked at the documentation at every step of the way. There is kind of market entry documentation, like who is Fastly, what are you, what are you doing? So your your sales documentation, I imagine, was not so much localized. You must have created a lot of it from scratch because of the the new positioning you were taking. A lot of it was created from stra- scratch. A lot of it was repurposed from existing documentation. For example, we had documentation on our partnership with Google. Essentially, marketing documentation, one one pagers, that described our our relationship with Google. So we had that translated. Messaging was pretty much the same, but then again, there were other、uh, other components, specifically with some of our partners, that needed to be kind of you know rethought up from scratch. Okay. And our both and all of our partners have been like influential in helping develop that material. And on the user side, was the most important documentation things like tutorials, or was it、uh, user manual or technical specifications? What was the most critical thing to bring into Japanese?、Yeah. So we had our、uh, docs.fastly.com, which is basically our product documentation. If you want, if you are a user of Fastly and you want to know how to achieve a specific objective, you should reference the documentation.、Okay. We've identified. You know, a couple of dozen articles in that documentation that we thought were critical that we needed to have translated. So we worked with our documentation team. 
to tweak our documentation site so that of those articles that were available both in English and Japanese, you could click a little toggle at the top of the page. If you were on the English page, it would, you click the toggle, it would take you to the Japanese page and vice versa. Were the critical documents, were they high-level tutorials or quick start guides or detailed specs or a mix of all of them? Um, a mix of all of them, but mostly kind of quick start guides and how-tos. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, we, we leveraged uh, Kita. Are you familiar with Kita? So kind of an engineering blog site. Mm. So what we did is we found some cases where our customers are asking us questions, and we didn't have the perfect spot in our documentation to put it because there wasn't really kind of the parallel piece of documentation. So we just created an, an article in Kita and kept a list of all, you created our own tags in Kita, so there's a Fastly tag in Kita, okay. where you can look at all of the Fastly documents. And, then, and so we, we kind of leveraged that as our kind of... Um, kind of your Japan-specific Yeah, documents. and again, kind of targeting that DevOps community. I certainly wouldn't send a, a, one of our partner's corporate customers <laughs> to that doc site. But if somebody comes and says, hey, I, you know, I'm really interested in learning how to do this and this with your product. Can you do that? And you know, one of our sales engineers would say, yeah, we can. In fact, here's the article on how to do that. That's kind of helped us promote ourselves and also get engineers more comfortable with our techno technology. It sounds like you adapted your partner strategy quickly. Both the partner side of the sales and your bottom-up direct sales seem to be going pretty well now. So looking back on the last little more than a year and a half now, what would you do differently if you had to do it again? I think one of the thing, one of the mistakes that I made is I didn't really have an appreciation for the power of the, uh, of the reseller and partner network here. In what it's way? a huge ecosystem. So we would go into, even into direct customers where we'd say, okay, we're doing this. You, get, you would you exchange Meishi, and there was maybe two people from the customer, and then you'd meet another guy who had a different Meishi. And like, he'd be their system integrator. He'd be their system integrator, or it wasn't clear what he was doing there, <laughs> right? Uh, so one of the things that we learned very quickly is that we need to, to tread quite lightly and make sure that we're not only providing value to the customer, but we're not undercutting this other person in the room. Okay. Right. Because if, you, if he is a trusted partner and you are undercutting his value or reducing his revenue in, in any way, then the sales he is going to cut you off. It's right. done. It's, it's over. It's, it's very interesting how a lot of Japanese companies rely on these system integrators for a lot of things, including advice and consent. An awful lot of Japanese companies, even technology companies, have surprisingly little in-house technology expertise. Uh, that it's is a very, surprising. It's a very shallow bench. Yep. So what would you have done differently if, you, if you'd understood the importance of the system integrator and sort of the, the mind capture that they have over their clients. The best thing to do is to educate the system integrator first and be educated, understand like what, what they're bringing to the table and, and be clear on, on what your objective is 
and not to kind of offend their objective. So like before the sales call, figure out who this company's who system is. Who are we meeting with at this call, right? You know, ask for the people who, who we'll be meeting with. And they say, oh, we're meeting uh, Kubo-san from SYI. You know, okay, well, let's meet with Kubo-san first and find out what does he do? What's his role? What's his offering? And um, it kind of introduce Fastly to him and kind of try to get his blessing so he takes a more kind of accepting posture in that meeting with the, cu- with the customer. And that's really important here because, again, it's the trust relationship between those two guys, between the customer and his system integrator, it's a tight bond that's been built over a number of years. No matter how compelling my offering is, how good my product is, how great my technology is, I'm not going to win if the system integrator says, maybe not such a good idea. Right, right. Well, it keeps coming back to the importance of relationships, doesn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of relationships, uh, before we were talking about the team on the ground here in Japan yeah. and how they were working with the San Francisco team. Now, one of the biggest challenges a lot of foreign companies face coming into Japan is way too often the Japanese subsidiary becomes kind of a black box. It sounds like Fastly has avoided that problem. Was this something you consciously took steps to to integrate the teams or did you just manage to attract the right people and the teams naturally integrated with the global team? I would say that we are kind of still working through that. I, I think we would benefit a lot from more interaction with our counterparts in San Francisco, more physical interaction, them coming here more often, us going there more often. We don't see them live and in breathing, living and breathing nearly as much. About how often do you do you um, do? You know, I would, my target is to go back uh, at least once a quarter and sometimes that doesn't happen. Mm. Team goes back maybe once a year. The good thing is that Japan is a favorite destination for a lot of the people in, in San Francisco. <laughs> Everyone wants to come here. Everybody wants They're to They're just come looking here. for an excuse. Much to, much to the chagrin of the people who, like, who manage the travel budget, right? So it's good that we have historically had a number of visits, but I, I feel like we need to get our people here in Japan back to kind of feel our culture, because we have a very specific culture in our San Francisco office. And it's a great place to work and it's a great place to be. And I want that culture to kind of seep into to the people here. And it has to a large extent. What are the biggest differences in kind of corporate culture between headquarters and Japan right now? First of all, diversity. We have got some great diversity. We've got men and women of all races working at our corporate headquarters in San Francisco. And that's awesome. I wish we had some diverse, more diversity here, but to a certain extent, I realize that I have to hire Japanese people, right? That's that's who well, I sure. Have. But we well, don't have we don't have any women working for us. Okay. And I think that's an untapped opportunity for for us. I think one of the things that we need to evolve in our Japanese way of thinking is, I think a lot of times we listen to our customers' question and we answer the question without challenging the premise. What do you mean? So a customer will, may say, well, I want to do this and this. How do I do this? And we'll tell them, well, this is how you do it with Fastly. We don't say, why, why exactly do you want to do it that way? There's actually a better way to do it. If, did you think about doing 
doing this and this. Oh and... boy, that's a deep Japanese problem right there. Right across、We're... the board, it's it's Japanese sales staff and engineers have a hard time asking why. Yeah, our culture in San Francisco, where yeah, everybody from top to bottom is not afraid to say, "Okay, I have an answer for you," but let's talk about. Why? Why yeah, do you want what to do? You, what are you really trying to what do? What are you trying、here? to do? Because、cool. we might have a better way, a better premise that makes the whole question irrelevant. So I think、uh, I think that's something that we can learn. We need to evolve here in Japan. But but you're right. It is a cultural thing here in Japan, and it's very hard to teach somebody who's used to having such respect and deference to a customer that they don't want to challenge them. Because I think they view that if I ask them a, that question, I'm challenging them. I think also another part of it is that from the from a Japanese perspective, to ask why, the person they're asking might not know the answer, and、yeah. he might end up making that person look bad in front of his peers, which is a terrible thing and will kill a sale. Yep. I, I think that's probably another another part of it here. That that's very much true, and and so sometimes you. Find yourself contributing to as a small part of a solution that maybe could have been a little bit better,、uh, right? Because no one at bothered to kind of step and say, "Wait, why are we doing it this way again?" That that's always in the proverbial phase two of the project. <laughs> exactly right. There's going to be version two. Yeah, phase two is when we do it right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's one, that's one thing. But I do have to say that I've been very fortunate with the team that I've. Been able to hire, and a lot of them have just I've become familiar with, and have been on my radar. Like、oh, that's a guy I would really like to hire.、And、there's only been one person I've really gone through a recruiter and gone through the process, and it, it, there's a number of people that I, I know that guy, and he, you know, but someday I think he'd be a good addition to our team. That's a great way to build a team. Yeah,、that's、I think、really、it is. Yeah, on a personal level, yeah, bringing a country into Japan is. Chaotic and requires everyone that does it to do a whole bunch of things they've never had to do before or think about before. Yeah, it's great. It you, is. You get、it's, to learn a lot. Yeah, you're forced to learn a lot. Yeah, had no choice. For you personally, what was the most challenging or difficult thing that that you had to do in the last eighteen? I'd say probably one of the most challenging things that I've had to do is to kind of let go, to trust my people, to. to First of all, I don't speak Japanese. I barely understand Japanese, and so I've had to rely on the instincts of some of my people.、Uh, they understand our, what the vision is, what we want to do, what we hope to achieve, and generally how we want to do it. But as we kind of grow and get bigger, I've kind of had to let go and let them do it the Japanese way、okay. and succeed in the Japanese way. For example. Uh, our sales team went through this sales training. It's a very North America-centric sales training, and so we all went through it. And okay, I went through it myself, and I'm like, okay, this is really interesting, and it seems like it'd be very effective. But I know that there are ways that this is not going to work in Japan, and and I and I don't know what those ways are. I don't I, I don't know exactly what's not going to work, but I know that some of these things are going to some of these questions are going to be too intrusive. We can't ask these questions. Some of these methods aren't going to be quite right. We can't do it quite that way. So, did the Japanese team sit down and explain, "No, this isn't right. We don't want to do it this way," or did they just say, "That was educational. We'll we'll take the good stuff, but we're going to do it do it our way." I think we both went. Everybody in Japan went into that training, myself included, knowing that this is very North America centric training. Ah, 
And so I was fully prepared for my team to say, hey, listen, Doug, this is not going to... This is not going to fly here in Japan. In some cases, they just tweaked it a little bit on their own, mm-hmm. and, but I could tell. And, and that's just one example, but just having the confidence in my team to just say, I can't know everything, and I hired you guys because you have experience in this, and I'm going to let you help inform these decisions and actually make some of these decisions yourself. Do you think not speaking the language, so not being able to really stay on top of the communication, does that make it easier to delegate and trust the team or harder to delegate and trust the team? It's a hump that you had to get, I had to get over. It was uncomfortable at first, but I, uh, my team has earned my respect, and so I'm comfortable with them, to a certain extent, making some decisions. There are some decisions that, that they, need to, they know they need to talk to me about. Right. First. I've kind of gotten over that hump. It's incredibly uh, embarrassing at times to not speak the language but at the same time, there are instances where you can play the ignorant gaijin card sure. and get away with it, right? There are certain things I can get away with that none of my Japanese staff would ever be able to get away with. I imagine life got a lot uh, less stressful once you just sort of accepted that, okay, I can't understand everything that's going on. I'm just going to trust them. It did, and that came over time. It wasn't overnight. Part of it was some of the results that my team was producing specifically with some of the direct deals that they were doing. Well, listen, before we wrap up, I really want to ask you, what is the, the best advice you could give to someone else that's in your situation? Someone else that's bringing in a highly technical company into Japan? Bringing a company into Japan is an exercise in patience. And not only do you have to have that patience, but you need to set that expectation with all of your stakeholders, with the executives and whomever else is a stakeholder in your organization. You need to um, make sure that they understand it's gonna take time, it's gonna take money, it's gonna take effort, and it's not gonna happen overnight. Especially with the explosive growth that we see in a lot of tech companies based you know, in San Francisco, the Bay Area, anywhere in the, in the States. So do you mean patience in terms of revenues or Everything. bigger? Everything. In fact, our, for our first year, we didn't even have a revenue target. We weren't focused on revenue. We were focused on building our brand and getting logos, getting customers. Our customer count was, was more important to us than, than revenue. Mm. And so we're kind of just making that turn. We have just made that turn recently where, okay, we still need to build our, our customer base, but we need to focus more on revenue now. I think the whole team was expecting that to come a little bit later, but revenue started to come much earlier than anyone expected because I think we, we were realistic about, you know, this is going to take some time and we need to focus on building our brand. And, and I, I fully expected it to take a little bit longer than it, than it has. But I have to say the FASC executive team has been very patient with us and we're kind of treated as a special child because... Revenue in North America and Europe is growing. We're we're still a rounding error. You know, we're, we cause a, a big stink because we're different, right? Right. We're different than everybody else. Everything is weird and different. And the and, special attention and the, isn't justified by revenues. Yeah, and the care and feeding that we need, we're the tiny little baby who's crying all the time. <laughs> and we're not producing any revenue, so... So people need to go in with that expectation. I think so. I think so. And be pleasantly surprised if it comes early rather than disappointed if you're not getting it right off the bat. Excellent. 
Hey, well, listen, Doug, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Thanks so much, Tim. Your journey to success in Japan will involve some twists and turns. In trying to navigate new terrain, planning the safest, most effective way through on your own can be overwhelming. The Carter Group have been using market intelligence and research to guide Japan entrants for decades. They've honed an agile, cost-effective, but consultative approach that will help you find the perfect product market fit, explore user and consumer dynamics, and act as an honest broker to let you know the reputation and track record of potential partners here in Japan. And when you're ready to go, their executive search team can also help you hire the right people to drive your business forward. So if you haven't got Japan completely figured out yet, the Carter Group can help you out. And we're back. One of the most interesting parts of Doug's and Fastly's story is how they had to change their positioning when coming into Japan. The product itself was identical, of course, but the positioning and value proposition had to be changed. While the U.S. customers were primarily concerned with speed and technical capabilities, the Japanese buyers considered improved security and reliability to be the most important factors. And you know, I've seen this preference for reliability and stability play out in Japan time after time. We talked a lot about the importance of partners and resellers, and it's not just in terms of making the sale, which is how most people think about them, but in terms of how long-term relationships really guide the decision-making process in Japan. Doug's experience with prospects bringing their current technology vendors into the sales meetings is pretty typical. The integrators have tremendous power in Japan, and regardless of your product's advantages, it's highly unlikely that you'll make a sale if the prospect system integrator doesn't get behind it. After all, sales in Japan is a far more collaborative and far less competitive endeavor than it is in the United States. If you've ever tried to sell new technology in Japan, Doug and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com show 070 and let's talk about it. When you drop by, you'll find all the links and sites that Doug and I talked about and much, much more in the resources section of the post. And I know you've been meaning to get around to doing this for a while now, but if you get the chance, please leave us an honest review on iTunes. It's really the best way you can support the show and help us get the word out. And most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japan know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.